This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode contains adult themes and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, the world. This is They Will Kill, a true crime podcast. I'm Sadie Eck. And I'm Courtney Eck. And we're sisters, and we're going to talk to you about some murder. A lot of murder. Well, uh, a murder, but it's a lot. There's a lot of murder within that murder. (laughs) Just to clarify. (laughs) That sounds awful. Get excited. Uh, well, I'm ready. I'm ready to hear all about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to sorry to truncate your intro, but I guess we'll just give the people what they're here for. That's right. I don't have anything else to say about it. Great. So today's uh, lot of murder is the murder of Daniel Sorensen, also known as the Northville, Michigan thrill kill. Whoa. I know. So I actually was looking, uh, again, getting on Reddit and scrolling through at two o'clock in the morning, looking for murders to talk about. And I found a story about an asylum in Northville, Michigan, that apparently had, there's a series of tunnels that were burrowed below the asylum. And the, the thing that I read said that they were used to transport the patients from the asylum into town. Anyway, and that there Wait, was- were a- they like- uh- like burrowed on purpose? Yes, like sorry. By... Like actual tunnels, sort of like the Shanghai tunnels in Portland. Like a system of tunnels under an asylum. Right. And into the city of Northville, Michigan. Okay. And that there had been a murder that had taken place near the tunnels and that people, you know, were like living under there and all this creepy stuff. So I was like, shit, yeah, that sounds exactly up my alley. So I went and looked it up. And there is an asylum, a defunct asylum in Northville, Michigan. There is a system of tunnels underneath the asylum. I couldn't see anything about them stretching beyond the underneath of the asylum. Mm-hmm. Uh, people do go and hang out in them, but I couldn't find anything about a murder. Mm-hmm. But when you type in Northville, Michigan, a whole heap of murders come up. <laughs> it's a suburb of Detroit, so okay. I think that has something to do with it, but... This story I found through that search. So thank you, Reddit, once again, for taking me on a journey from one murder to an equally awful and creepy murder. So Jean-Pierre Orlowitz, who's also known as JP, was an 18-year-old teenager from a fairly affluent family. He looked like someone who would attend a prep school with his clean-cut good looks. His friends said he was very mature for his age and described him as very friendly. I will say that I got a lot of my information for this story from the ID show Broken Trust episode Suburban Nightmare and also Killer Instinct with Chris Hansen and the episode was called Deadly Thrill. And between those two and then the actual photos of this kid and his court footage, I think he's got a real Martin Scarelli vibe. Mm. Just to give you an image, (laughs) visual. Yeah, everyone's favorite 
douchebag, Martin Scarelli. Right. <laughs> so JP's friend, Alexander Lechtman, was a free-spirited hippie sort of teenager. He had above-average intelligence, and things came very easy for him, but he put in the minimum amount of work at school. He was raised by a stay-at-home mom, and his father coached Little League. He was a very talented musician and could play music by ear. After high school, however, he started partying pretty hard and was drinking and doing drugs fairly regularly. JP and Alex were an unlikely pair, but both enjoyed going to meet up with their group of friends to smoke and drink in nearby Detroit, so they hung out often. JP was considered the leader of the friend group, and friends report that he gravitated toward a more kind of tough guy image, which led him into another unlikely friendship with a 26-year-old named Daniel Sorensen. Dan was a large man, which won him the nickname Bear, and he was not from a wealthy family, hadn't gone to college, and didn't even have a job at the time they became friends. He was described as a sort of gangster type who hung out in a rough crowd, had tattoos, and carried a gun. He came across as intimidating and protected the group from unwanted outsiders. People closest to him said he was an absolute sweetheart and would help anyone at any time. So we all know this guy. You know, we went mm-hmm. to high school with him. Uh, he's a big kind of doofy guy, tries to be super tough and is big and intimidating. So, you know, comes across as such, but is really just a kind of goofball sweetheart. JP had an unusual drive to make money for someone his age. He was very driven by the idea of making money. He wasn't interested in sports or other teenage activities, and he was immediately drawn to Dan's mob-style connections and access to profitable but illegal resources. Mm -hmm. The ID show that I watched, the acting was super good. (laughs) (laughs) Like it is. Yeah. Uh And... There's one part where JP's character says to Dan's character, I know lots of people who would pay good coin for this. <laughs> <laughs> good job, ID. Yeah. Real hip, hip, hip to, to the, the lingo. kid lingo. <laughs> yeah, to the mob style kid lingo. <laughs> and so I just want to back up, just make sure I'm on track. But so there's three guys that are palling around, right? Yes, okay. yes. There's a group of them, but um, Alex and JP and our quite close they love to party together they go to detroit all the time to get to get wasted and then this kid dan they run into him in that circle because dan lives in detroit uh so they run into him in detroit and they all become friends yeah okay yeah so jp spent a lot of time taking care of his grandfather in nearby canton michigan and would go over every day to check on him his intentions weren't all good as he would also use his grandfather's basement as a party pad Kids would meet up down there to play pool, video games, to drink and smoke pot, and his grandfather never caught on to their presence. I think he was a little senile. I mean, mm-hmm. according to the ID show, the acting <laughs> in the ID show. It was insinuated. Yeah, maybe hard of hearing. I mean, probably extremely hard of hearing yeah. if that's the case. Yep. JP and his friends were quick to include Dan in their basement parties, and it's reported that the much older Dan liked their attention and feeling important to the group of teens. I made a note that he reminded me of the bodyguard from I, Tanya. <laughs> if you've seen the movie, I, Tanya, <laughs> so he's got yeah, kind of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like a uh, real cool guy, but he's just, so just a sweet. sweetheart. Yeah. Yep. JP and Dan would talk frequently about starting a business together. And JP thought they could leverage Dan's mob ties to make lots of money. To make coin. 
to make holy eyes. <laughs> yep. Turns out, though, that Dan never had mob ties. He was just presenting the tough guy image. While Dan wasn't a full-fledged gangster, he did teach the teens smaller scams, like calling fast food restaurants to claim their food orders had been messed up to then get free food. <laughs> Buddy. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's pretty real hard stuff. Yeah. Everyone reported that while Dan liked to portray the tough guy image, he was also easy to laugh and goof around with his young friends. A while later, Dan got into a huge fight with his parents and moved in with a friend. Without a free place to stay, Dan was suddenly in need of a source of income. Dan had an extremely hard time finding even menial work, and his biggest obstacle was that he was a registered sex offender. Oh, no. So when Dan was 17, he had a 14-year-old girlfriend, and her parents were very aware of their relationship, even allowing Dan to live with them for some time. While living with the family, Dan began butting heads with the mother's boyfriend, and he turned 18 while their feuds continued to escalate. Mm -hmm. You can see where this is going. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the fighting got so intense, the boyfriend forced the mother to file charges against Dan, and considering that he had become an adult, he was charged with statutory rape. Bummer. Bummer. And I want to be very clear that I am not for predatory behavior, I'm not for adults sleeping with children, but I would consider this a case where they became, they were in a relationship at an appropriate age, and then right. there's always that thing where... It was consensual. And, yeah, it was completely yeah. consensual, and somebody becomes an adult, and their younger partner is still in high school, and it gets mm -hmm. a little murky, and in this mm -hmm. case, it was worst-case scenario, and poor Dan has to register as a sex offender. So Dan continues to hang out with JP frequently, and he goes over to his house and notices that there are stacks, even bags, of money laying around the house. At JP's house? At JP's house. So keep oh. in mind that JP was very wealthy. His father owned... Okay, um, that's right. Yeah, his father owned uh, some kind of manufacturing facility, and they had a ton of money. Right, and it was JP's grandpa's house they were partying in, right? Exactly right. Okay. Yes. So Dan inquired about the money and asked if they were worried about being the target of a robbery. And JP said that they had actually been robbed recently. He claimed that a friend of his had recently taken some of the money and that he was angry and wanted to do something about it. Well, I mean, like, don't leave your stacks of cash. Listen, up and I run into this problem all the time. I, mean, I have doesn't? bags and stacks of cash all over my house <laughs> and people are always just coming over and taking them. Yeah. That's a party favor, man. Put that shit away. <laughs> These are the drawbacks of being extremely wealthy. <laughs> so JP hatched a plan to invite the kid over and, quote, scare the crap out of him and try to get some of the money back from him. JP wanted Dan to be waiting with his revolver when the kid arrived to intimidate him into turning over the money. Dan was hesitant to add another black mark to his record, but he can't afford to turn down the $3,000 JP promised him if he helped with the plan. This story is very familiar. I haven't quite placed it yet. But really? Yeah. I, yeah. Anyway, keep going. I had never, I, yeah, I had never heard of it, but it's probably because there are a lot like it. And we'll get into that too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dan had also begun to think of the teens as his family and relish the opportunity to protect and help them out. Mm -hmm. 
I will, I do need to say really quickly that I got this story from the show and it was from his father, Dan's father. It was from the police detectives. This is the story that they told, but I did read several times that the story was that there was a kid who had inherited some money and they were going to invite him over and steal that money from him, like try to extort that money from him. So I'm not 100% sure I could not find 100% clarity on which it was if the kid had stolen from JP and they were going to steal back or if it was the inheritance. But right. we'll just throw that out there. So on November 8th, 2007, officers were summoned to the scene of a grisly discovery. They found a dead body wrapped in a blue tarp that had been burning overnight. Hmm. The body had been decapitated suffered multiple stab wounds, and someone had tried to burn the fingerprints off. You know, kind of worst-case scenario to come upon a body. And somebody found it, of course. Like, I think it was a fisherman or a dock worker. Oh, God. The police were stunned, as there weren't many homicide investigations in their quiet community, and they immediately suspected a drug hit or gang activity of some kind. Police lucked out and found a clear tire track and some footprints nearby. They caught another lucky break when the crime lab was actually able to salvage the partially burned prints, and within two hours they knew who their victim was. The prints came back to identify the victim as Dan Sorensen. I was afraid of that. No. (sighs) They notified Dan's family, and his father recalls dropping to his knees. Through tears, he said, quote, I think a lot of parents that have been through this will tell you the same thing. Your world changes just like that, and everything is different, and nothing is ever the same again. He recalls the devastation of hearing that his son had been torched and dumped, and that they didn't know where his son's head was. God. The devastation continued as news outlets repeatedly reported Dan's death as the decapitation of a sex offender. Oh, my God. And if you look up this case, every single headline talks about the decapitation of a sex offender, which is admittedly something that drew me into the case. So I was like, well, what was going on here? But it's, you know, they took this part of his past and just blew it up in the headlines. That's disgusting it's disgusting it's really sad so a friend of dan's told police that she'd seen him with a borrowed phone as he couldn't afford his own at the time and luckily she'd stored the phone number in her phone police were quickly able to determine that the tire track likely came from a chevy s10 series pickup truck police were also able to obtain a list of calls to and from the borrowed phone and began to call them one by one the last number on the list was for J.P. Orlowitz. That guy. Ooh, hey. I knew it. <laughs> yeah. Look, if you ever meet somebody and they remind you of Martin Scarelli, mm-hmm. run. Run. They're going to probably murder you. <laughs> <laughs> or jack up your life-saving drug by 700%. Or <laughs> buy the Wu-Tang album and then... For $4 million or whatever. The only one. And then not share it. That's what he did. He bought it and didn't share it. What a dick. God, yeah. Detectives went to JP's house to question him. And JP claimed that on the day Dan was murdered, he was supposed to meet him at his grandfather's but never showed. He claimed that when Dan didn't arrive, he hung out with his grandfather for a little while and then returned home later that night. 
While at the home, detectives discover a Chevy S10 pickup truck, mm. an exact match for the tracks found at the scene. I'm shocked. I know. <laughs> I mean, this guy. Mm-hmm. Detectives didn't think that JP was involved in the murder in the beginning and that there had to be something bigger at play, but they searched the truck just in case. I mean, can you imagine this little scrawny, like, prep school teenage kid, and you've got this insane discovery, and you're just like, uh, there's no way to put the two together. Yeah, Yeah. it just doesn't make sense. They noted that the truck had been freshly washed, and one of the detectives found little red dots in the bed of the truck, which they quickly identified as blood. They also confirmed that the wheelbase measurements matched exactly. In the interior of the truck, they found five or six containers of Drano, which wasn't a especially strange thing for a teenage boy to store in his vehicle. Mm-hmm. They also checked his tennis shoes and found that they had the exact same pattern as the footprints found at the scene. So, JP was then taken into the station for questioning. It really kind of points out the, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but... Um immaturity of yeah just like taking Mm -hmm. taking so much time to try to destroy a body and then leaving just really obvious evidence behind yeah anyway you know like yeah just i'll just deal with a drano later just deal with those six super conspicuous bottles of drain cleaner later you know yeah it's exactly what i was struck with that too when i read all of this JP immediately clammed up and asked for an attorney, so there was no further discussion at that point. Meanwhile, the detectives tried to wrap their minds around what JP's motive could possibly have been, and the fact that it was very unlikely he'd carried out the crime alone. Mm -hmm. The police applied for warrants to search his truck and home, and while they waited, a witness came forward to give them information that would break the case wide open. On November 7th, Issam Ayash who is also referred to as Izzy, received a phone call from JP who said it was imperative that Izzy come to his grandfather's house right away. Izzy showed up and parked a couple houses down from the grandfather's. When he arrived at the house, he said JP and Alex came out of the side door and into the driveway. They brought Izzy into the garage where Dan's body was wrapped in a tarp on the ground. JP said that they just needed Izzy's help to get the body into the truck and then he was free to go, and Izzy complied, afraid of what would happen to him if he didn't. <laughs> Can you imagine? No. Hey, Court, uh, I need your help with something. Can hey, you why don't you come over to my grandpa's? You're like, sweet, I'm going to get some pot, some pizza. It's yeah. going to be fun. And then you show up, and there's a body that, wrapped in no. a tarp. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't blame him at all. I wouldn't. I mean, what do you do? Like, <laughs> you, you you help them. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to be the probably next. Yeah. And it's wrapped horrifying. in a tarp. Yeah. It's super horrifying. This poor kid, too. He speaks on the show and he's just a like kind of cute, slow talking, you know, teen. He's just a teen. Right. Based on Izzy's testimony, they bring in Alex for questioning, hoping to get to the bottom of what really happened that night. Alex claims that JP set up the fake extortion plan to lure Dan into his grandfather's to kill him. No. I will say, too, that Alex just gave it up right away. Like, this kid's standing, as far as I could tell from the footage, like, basically standing in the lobby of the police station, just telling them everything. (laughs) 
And he's just kind of a goofy. He really is just a goofy hippie kid. And he's sort of even like acting it out a little bit and not in a creepy way, just like in a teenage way. It's the craziest thing to watch. He said that when he showed up to the house to party on the 7th, JP had already set up a kill room in the garage, complete with tarps covering the walls and ground, a saw, garbage bags, Drano and bleach to clean up after. Alex claimed that he was petrified, but went along with his friend's plan. Alex said that Dan arrived at 4.30 p.m., and JP lured him into the garage. As soon as Dan entered, JP attacked him from behind, slit his throat, and Dan fell to his knees. I know. I know. I Imagine being Alex. Just No. Once I'm again, <laughs> thinking you're just going to go over to your buddy's house to party and then this is happening. I'm so curious. To, I mean, I know you'll probably hopefully tell us why, but I, like, yeah. why? Yeah. JP proceeded to stab Dan in the back 13 times. Oh my God. Yeah. After JP stabbed Dan, he stood up and said that he, quote, sure made a mess. The boys let Dan bleed out on the tarp, and then JP grabbed a saw and proceeded to decapitate him. I, uh, I don't like it. No, I, I just, I can't, I can't even crush a bug. Literally, <laughs> like, I can't smush a bug. Mm-hmm. It's, I cannot imagine. And then to be Alex, who's just standing there watching all this happen. I, yeah. The head was then placed in a Rubbermaid bin and covered in Drano in an attempt to disintegrate it. Oh, God. They also took a blowtorch to Dan's fingers to burn off his fingerprints and conceal his identity. Alex claimed he was terribly distraught, even going outside to throw up at one point, and when he was unable to help JP finish, Izzy was called to complete the job. After Izzy left, Alex accompanied JP to the dump site where they then set the decapitated body on fire. Alex is able to lead the detectives to where the head was dumped near a river outside of Detroit, confirming his entire story to be true. I don't think I could be furrow- furrowing my brow anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't kidding. I mean, that is a lot. It's a lot of to murder. do to poor Dan. That's atrocious. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I really, like, I can't even watch the movie Shallow Grave. Oh, God, it's too much, you know? It's too much. Police then search the garage and find more than enough evidence to convict JP. Because once again, this little shit just left everything in there. How old was JP? 18, I believe, yeah. Wow. So JP's defense team claimed that he'd gotten into an argument with Dan and acted in self-defense. He said that Dan threatened his life, the life of his girlfriend and various family members. He explained that the tarps and the setup in the garage had actually been Dan's idea and that they were part of the plan to scare the kid they were luring over to extort money from. JP claimed that when the kid didn't arrive, Dan became irate and threatened to, quote, blow his freaking brains out. The defense was able to present several instances of people filing official complaints against Dan including intimidation, death threats, violent outbursts, and stalking. In 2006, two people even filed personal protection orders against him, 
This was quickly ruled out as it was clear based on Alex's testimony and the fact that Dan was attacked from behind and that JP continued to stab him well after Dan could have posed any sort of threat. Mm -hmm. After two days of deliberation, JP Orlowitz was sentenced to life without parole. Alex Lechtman signed a confession and pled guilty to second degree murder. So was sentenced to 20 to 30 years with the possibility of parole. So why would two suburban kids kill their friend for no reason? Please, please tell me. <laughs> please. <laughs> well, friends of the boys said that they had gotten into harder drugs and JP was known to supply their parties with cocaine and acid. And so some of them thought maybe their partying had led to the murder and dismemberment of Dan. Mm, which no. I don't think so. No. No. I don't do drugs, kids, but I have done a few. And they don't make you want to murder people. They make you want to do the opposite of murdering people. Yeah. They you make know? you want to party. Yeah. I've never or done go to sleep. like PCP or something, <laughs> you know, maybe, or bath salts. I've never t taken a drink of bath. I don't even know how you do bath salts. Snorted them, <laughs> drunk. Uh, Did you take a drink? Take a drink of them? I don't know. I don't, I don't know what know you either. do with them. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you don't drink them, but I could be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I don't take a bath in them. I'm soaking them. Anyway, yeah, I don't. I I know drugs make people do crazy things. Obviously, that's very apparent, but not. And maybe not like create a kill room. And there's so much premeditation. Premeditation. Yeah. Exactly. It's not like these kids were hanging out. And we're doing drugs and they got in an argument and then one of them stabbed the other one and, right. you that know, got out of control. Sense. Absolutely. Yeah, acid doesn't make you like want to hang tarps on the walls. God, no. Again, I've never done acid, but I think it makes you want to do the opposite. Right. <laughs> that would like really bum out your trip from what I've heard. Yeah. So classmates testified that JP had a, quote, dark alter ego and would, quote, brainstorm various criminal activities at school. His peers said that he'd openly spoken about wanting to kill someone and that he would know how to cover his tracks really well. JP schoolmate Alex Mullins testified that on November 6th, he helped JP put tarps up on the windows of his grandfather's garage and across the floor. Quote, he told the jury JP told him he was going to kill Sorensen because he simply didn't like him. Mm. He told the jury he wanted no part of it and didn't participate. He also testified that he was asked to be the lookout for the murder. JP had spoken for weeks about wanting to kill Sorensen, Mullins added. Quote, he wanted to stab Dan, Mullins said. He wanted to bag him up in a tarp, hang him upside down from a tree, burning. Oof. He said he wanted to cut his head off. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay, can we all agree, if someone's telling you oh to murder God. somebody, you go ahead and call the police. Please. Seriously, teenagers, if you're listening. And it yes. is really, you know, when you're teenagers, or just everything's so dramatic. And we're always, mm -hmm. like, really into the occult. And, the, you know, like, right. oh, man, we live in the country. And shit's really scary around here. You know, so we'd <laughs> say, like, overly dramatic things. Yeah. So I can totally understand why a teenager would say something like that to another teenager and they wouldn't take it seriously but please for the love of god if they're going so far as to ask you to help them right you're like actively hanging tarps in garages yes, yes. go ahead you don't have to call the police to tell your parents tell yeah the teacher yes T tell grandpa in the, the room like just seriously. talk about it yes 
find anyone who can help you. Even if you think it's just for an extortion plot or a burglary, that's plenty of reason to get the police involved Mm -hmm. because you know what happens when people extort money? Somebody gets hurt and somebody dies, Mm -hmm. even if it's not a premeditated thing. So I, I totally agree with you. Prosecutors paraded several witnesses in front of the jury who claimed JP had said that he wanted to kill someone and that he owned a gun. JP denied the claims, including one man's testimony that he watched JP take out the gun, put one bullet in the chamber, and play Russian roulette. Hmm. That's not normal behavior. No. To this day, JP hasn't said a single word about what motivated him to kill Dan that day. Wow. I'm surprised by that. Especially with his age, you'd think that part of this would be to brag brag. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then to watch the court testimony of this kid, he is playing an innocent role. You know, he's not playing a creepy killer role mm-hmm. or relishing in it. Like you see some, you know, like math school shooter kids who just love this. Like, oh, I'm crazy. He's mm-hmm. really trying to play this innocent kid. So uh, most of the sources that I read listed this as a thrill kill. Um, and of course, when I'm reading something like this, I'm like, you I'm like, why the fuck did he kill this guy? And why did he do it so brutally? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't decapitate a body unless you're either extremely desperate or you Sick. like it. Yes. Yeah. You know, that kind of murder, that sort of murder tells me that you, there's something extremely wrong with you. So mm-hmm. I looked and looked and looked and looked for any kind of evidence, testimony, anything other than what I just read to you about why he did it. And it, there's no information. So I thought I would go down a different path and research thrill kills in general. Because mm-hmm. everybody listed this as a thrill kill. All the uh, newspaper headlines said thrill kill. So I just Googled thrill kill. <laughs> Before we do that real quick, I'm just yeah. also thinking that if he is a sociopath, say. That's maybe... safe. That's safe to say. <laughs> He's playing the long con, hoping he'll get away with this so he can do it again. Right? Right. Yes. Yeah. That is it. And actually, I'm glad you brought that up. There was another case that I read about on Reddit. And they were like, there's no way this kid's going to get away with it because he dismembered the body. But there was a previous case of somebody. I can't remember what his name was. But he killed somebody, just chopped the body up, and did get away with the self-defense plea. Wow. Uh, Yeah. So whether or not this kid had heard about it. I don't know, but mm-hmm. it's it, there was precedence for that for him to be able to get away with it. I think his right. age played into that. His affluence, you know, there's lots of things who would make him think as a sociopath, like this is something I could get away with. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that's a very good point. So, these kids. The story reminded me of the movie Funny Games, which, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. If you like horror, it is actually the scariest movie I've ever seen. It scares me more than anything else I've ever seen. And it's just about two boys killing a family for fun. Yeah, I've tried to start it multiple times. I've never been able to get through it. It's Fucking too scary. Awful. <laughs> yeah. It is awful. I highly yeah. recommend watching the original too. The I think it was Michael Haneke version. The American version is scene by scene, shot for shot, the exact same movie. But I'm not as scared by the actors. And Naomi Watts is in it. I don't really like her. <laughs> but... It's great. If you don't want to watch the original, which is you have to read the subtitles, the American version is quite good, but it's terrifying. And that's this is what that reminded me of. So when I looked up Thrill Kills, what I found, there is actually a Wikipedia page that's called Thrill Kills. And you can scroll through and 
over and over and over again, patterns of three, like two boys or two girls, mostly boys, but two boys killing, young boys killing a third. So let me take you down a little quick path of instances where this has occurred in the past. On May 21st, 1924, University students Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb kidnapped and murdered 14-year-old Bobby Franks. Leopold, age 19 at the time, and Loeb, 18, believed themselves to be Nietzschean Übermenschen, which was Nietzsche's idea of setting a goal for oneself to become a superhuman who could commit a, quote, perfect crime, in this case, kidnapping and murder. Don't be a Nietzschean Übermenschen, guys. (laughs) Please. (laughs) On September 8, 1988, 20-year-old bank clerk Janine Balding was abducted from a railway station at Sutherland, New South Wales, Australia, by five homeless youths with extensive criminal records and driven to nearby, excuse me when I pronounce this, Minchinbury, where she was repeatedly raped by three of the male offenders before being bludgeoned, hogtied, and drowned in a dam. The ringleaders, 22-year-old Stephen Wayne Shorty Jameson, 16-year-old Matthew James Elliott, and 14-year-old Bronson Matthew Blessington, were arrested the next day and later sentenced to life imprisonment plus 25 years without the possibility of parole. Blessington and Elliott are the youngest offenders to receive this sentence in Australian history. On February 12, 1993, two 10-year-old boys, everybody knows the story, but two 10-year-old boys, Robert Thompson and John Venables, abducted and murdered toddler James Bolger in Liverpool, England. Thompson and Venables did not know the child but wished to kill someone. They were in prison for eight years. On April 19, 1997, New Jersey teens Thomas Koskovich and Jason Vreeland ordered a pizza and ambushed the two men who delivered it, Giorgio Galliara and Jeremy Giordano before going bowling. Koskovich and Vreeland told police they wanted to experience what it was like to commit murder. On July 17, 1997, Jesse McAllister and Bradley Price killed a man and a woman on a seaside Oregon beach only to, quote, experience it, meaning murder, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on March 29, 2005, James Patrick Rohan, nephew of convicted killer Catherine Knight, and his friend Christopher Clark Jones stabbed and bashed 17-year-old Morgan J. Shepard over 130 times Holy cow! before decapitating him with an axe in Dayboro, Queensland, Australia, after a lengthy drinking session. Wow. Shepard's head was used as a puppet and bowling ball, according to witnesses. <sighs> Both men were sentenced to life imprisonment with a non-parole period of 27 years. Three youths who cannot be named because of their age were sentenced to two years detention for helping dispose of the body. Just two more, guys. July 16, 2007, two young men, Victor Sayenko and Igor Supernyuk, I'm going to go with that, murdered 21 people from June 25, mm-hmm. 2007 to July 16, 2007 in Ukraine. There's no apparent motive for the murders. In October 4, 2009, Teenagers Stephen Spader and Christopher Gribble murdered Kimberly Cates and severely injured her daughter Jamie during a home invasion in Mont Vernon, New Hampshire. Both were assaulted with a machete. 17-year-old Spader admitted hacking Kimberly Cates to death with 36 blows to the head and torso. Spader had formed a club he called, quote, the Disciples of Destruction shortly before the murder to whom he recruited his confederates. 
which I might actually want to do a story on that one. I haven't looked in to see if there's enough information, but point being, this happens a lot. And so that made me think about something that I read about a long time ago, which is the sociopath, empath, apath triad. So this explains, I'm going to read directly from an article. It's you know, kind of psychology speak. So hang in there. But it's it's very, I think it's very understandable. But this explains how a sociopath recruits an apath to attack an empath. Mm-hmm. And you see this over and over and over again. Got all this information too, I will say, from a site called Psychopaths in Life. And this article is called The Sociopath, Empath, Apath Triad Explained. So one very useful and important framework through which to interpret psychopathic abuse is the so-called sociopath, empath, apath triad. This triad very accurately describes a method of psychological abuse employed regularly by psychopaths, sociopaths, and other toxic characters. It involves the basic method of triangulation, which many people will be familiar with, where the sociopath effectively uses other people as a pawn to play off against their target who is very often an empath. All three are needed to make up what is referred to in the empathy trap as the sociopathic transaction, a scenario or situation which the sociopath deliberately manufactures to undermine and target empathetic individual by enlisting the active or passive support of onlookers or apaths. So basically what's that saying, and I'll get into a little bit more, is I'm the sociopath I'm going to manufacture a situation where it's okay to attack the empath with the help of my buddy who's the mm-hmm. apath. It's really making me think about uh, Columbine. Mm-hmm. I read a book by... Uh... Wally Lamb? <laughs> he did a book about it. It's no, great. It's no, no, great. it's Dylan, uh, his mom. Oh, right. Right. Yep. I'm pretty sure it was Dylan. Dylan's mom. Yeah. We might want to cut this out because I don't have my facts straight, but she was talking about how her son was in her mind, you know, so easygoing and had his troubles, but he was like a really good yes. kid. Yes. And it's Dylan and what's the other guy's name? I can't remember, but yeah. But he was, yeah, the other guy was the one that really kind of more predatory. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or like the girls, the one girl, the uh, Slender Man story mm-hmm. where the one girl is schizophrenic and she convinces her other friend who's just this normal kid like wraps her up in her fantasy to kill Mm -hmm. their third friend yeah you see it over and over and over again so the sociopath is the main toxic character here and for this article we can consider them the equivalent to a psychopath as well the sociopath is extremely manipulative toxic person devoid of empathy and compassion and with little or no ability to experience emotion They can give off a superficial or glib charm and very easily take people in with humor, sweet talking, or some other manipulative tactic, but they are in reality fake and empty individuals with no ability to connect. Most dangerously, though, they have no conscience and therefore there are no limits to how far they will go to psychologically target and undermine someone they see as a threat. They do not feel for the suffering they inflict on others, and potential targets must understand that with sociopaths, they are not dealing with people who are capable of guilt, remorse, or shame like normal people are. 
The empath is the sociopath's intended target and is most often a high-quality individual who possesses many of the traits the sociopath doesn't have. They are usually highly intelligent, empathetically tuned into others, moral, decent, strong people who have principles which they stick to. In a work setting, they are honest, straightforward, conscientious, solid workers who want to do things the right way. They also tend to be very observant people, and this is why sociopaths consider them a threat, as they will be the ones most likely to spot and call out unacceptable things that the sociopath says or does. Mm -hmm. They will spot their contradictions and hypocrisies in a way others will not so readily pick up on. They are often intuitive people with a strong sense of right and wrong who will very quickly spot that something is off with the sociopath in terms of their behavior and character. Mm -hmm. And finally, the apath is the person or group of people who are, quote, stuck in the middle to some extent, being neither psychopathic nor particularly strong, moral, or observant in the same way that the empath is. Mm -hmm. They tend to be the people who, quote, go along to get along, and may on some shallow level realize something is wrong with the sociopath, but are not strong enough to stand up against them or back the empath up. Hmm. And honestly, most people are apaths. Mm -hmm. they, society is made up of apaths, and you, I mean, it's really easy to see that. It's like, why would I react too strongly one way or another? I think is most people's reactions to most things. Right. Otherwise, they may simply be easily influenced people lacking in integrity and self-awareness and therefore very easily manipulated and turned against the empath by the sociopath. They are not usually intuitive and observant like the empath and therefore do not spot or else ignore the glaring red flags the sociopath will give off in terms of manipulative and deceitful behavior. The dynamic starts when the empath feels obliged to take a stand on something unacceptable the sociopath has done. The empath confronts the sociopath on their behavior. In response, the sociopath shifts the blame and attention away from themselves through a number of techniques such as lying, obfuscation, confusion, blame shifting, projection, and so on. The goal is to throw others off the scent of what they have done and divert the attention to the empath instead. So I think we've all gone through this, right? You have mm -hmm. the friend who you call them out and then they go to their, your other friends and they're like, mm -hmm. Courtney's such a bitch. She said this about you, you know, mm -hmm. and just blatantly make something up to turn everyone against you while you're like, wait, no, I, what I'm didn't do that. They did. That, you know? <laughs> but once you're in that defensive position, it's impossible to get other people to believe you because you're mm -hmm. damned. If you do, you're damned. If you don't, you know what I mean? Right. So the apath completes this transaction by either corroborating the sociopath's view or else not openly siding with the empath. They allow themselves to be taken in by the sociopath or else make a cowardly decision morally and choose not to back the empath even though they may see he is right. The sociopath may use a number of tactics to get the apath on board, such as flattery, bribery, lies, deceit, half-truths, miscommunication, and so on. They rely on a multitude of methods to draw the apath in and further isolate and target the empath. In other words, the sociopath could not get away with the psychological abuse they inflict on others without the passive or active collusion of the, quote, masses or crowd. The bulk of people who are not evil but not empathic or strong either and allow themselves to be very easily taken in by the sociopath and do not stand up for or validate the empath's correct point of view. They don't want to get in the sociopath's bad books. Mm -hmm. So, 
hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, <laughs> no, I th- it's fascinating. Isn't I mean, it it's, fascinating? It's, it's one of those things that you, like, somewhere in my brain, like, now that you've said it out loud, I'm like, well, duh. Right. But I had never thought of it like that. Yes. It also makes sense why it happens. It seems to happen a lot with teenagers. Yes. Right? Because they don't have the brain like material in their head. They're, yeah, they're still you know, forming like still, their brains. Right. Yeah. And they don't understand how social interactions should work or what's healthy and what isn't. And Absolutely. so it would be really easy for young sociopaths to get their apath friends to do shit that they would never do as adults. Absolutely. Like, you know, I think a lot of that is learned empathy and, yep. and uh, standing up for yourself, self-esteem, I guess. Absolutely. And weirdly, when we lived in Portland, Sadie and I, came in contact with three sociopaths and not just like, Oh, they're crazy. They're sociopaths, but three actual sociopaths, two of which tried to ruin my life. And one Mm -hmm. tried to ruin our best friend's life. And until you've come in contact with somebody like that and been through something, you, you would never be aware of what's going on. You have no idea that something is happening to you because they're so good at it. Mm -hmm. And they did exactly what this article outlines, which is, pull you in really, really, really close and then turn you against somebody. And then generally what happens in my case, what happened was I was the apath and I was helping them attack other people. And then eventually I became the person who was going to be attacked Mm -hmm. because I called them out. I figured out what was going on and called them out. And so then they turned on me. So it's really easy to get caught up in exactly like you said, if you've never done it before, especially Mm -hmm. if you're a teenager who's, you know, wanting to be included, who wants to be cool and liked and sociopaths and psychopaths are really good at making you feel included and liked. And um, most often you're a target if you're somebody who is either just kind of a good, you know, good time Charlie or really wants that attention, who really Mm -hmm. wants somebody to love them. Like in your case that you mentioned Columbine, that's a perfect example of that, that kid who really wanted to be loved and this predator loved him and then in the end recruited him to do something mm-hmm. extraordinarily awful. Yep. So His name is Eric. I thought of it finally. Thank you. Very good. Good job. <laughs> Thanks. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. So with the lack of a clear motive from JP or any kind of explanation from JP, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'll go figure it out. <laughs> got right to the bottom of it and the answer is really interesting yeah he's just crazy he's crazy and he was able to recruit these other kids to do this extremely awful thing to poor dan Sorensen. wow so i'm not gonna sleep tonight because you have two sons yeah (laughs) who are lovely children but are they are they or are they i mean like either way i'm screwed (laughs) 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 if they're sociopaths or empaths yeah you know like or apaths yeah Yeah. well i think it's you know i think about it's what part of the reason i brought it up one is to you know help people from having this happen to them because it can um hopefully on a less horrifying you know in my case Mm -hmm. it's just like i lost some friends and was totally stunned on the other side of it and it's like holy shit what just happened but you know if you're raising children and helping them sort of navigate this world and you see any of these behaviors in them you know, just be aware of it and help mm-hmm. them understand that this is what people do and nobody's really immune to it. Hopefully no one's going to get murdered. But uh, yeah, I think that obviously is the extreme, yes. extreme of it. Yeah. 
more often sociopaths. I mean, psychopaths kill people, but sociopaths and ruin lives, but sociopaths usually just like that sort of mind game, you know, mm-hmm. interpersonal play. Yeah, yeah, they get off on that and they just do it over and over and over again. And it's damaging. It's horribly damaging, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're in a relationship with someone who's a sociopath. So if you're hearing this and you're relating to it <laughs> and you want to reach out and talk about it, um, we're more than happy to have conversations with people who are navigating through this. Because I've also had friends who are in relationships and are like, this is this just happened. This doesn't make sense. And I'm like, you're in a relationship with someone with a personality disorder. And they're like, how do you know that? And I'm like, oh, I've been there. I've been there a couple times. And once you've done it, you're like, bingo, red flag. That's not normal. But it takes going through it to get to the other side to know that that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, I got some shit to think about now. (laughs) (laughs) so interesting Courtney uh, good job thanks man thank you and so that's the murder of poor sweet Mm -hmm. Daniel Sorensen and if I you know if you want to see this sweetie pie and his dad has spoken out a lot he's in all the shows that I watched and good god man he's like a Dan Connor kind of character Mm -hmm. just like this guy loves his kid. He knew yeah. that his kid wasn't, you know, on the best path, but he was like, he's okay. You know, right. we're in Michigan. We, out. Yeah, yeah. We live in Detroit. Like this is just how kids are in the Midwest and the Northern Midwest. And yeah, it's really so, so sad and so sweet to watch him talking about his poor, sweet son. And his mom is in one of the episodes too. Just the perfect little Northern Midwestern family. So my heart goes out to them. Because, holy shit, man, you never expect some 18-year-old shithead preppy to take your son's life in such a horrifying way. No. Wow. Well, Well, there you go. There you go, guys. Raise your kids right. (laughs) Protect them from sociopaths and psychopaths. And uh, protect yourself, too. Yeah. That's it. Goodbye. There we go. <laughs> Don't you love the transition from murder I know, to I know. Other it really stuff? is so hard to shift. Yeah. We need some like soothing like music between. <laughs> yeah. Like this is this is your recalibration music. Uh, now we're gonna talk about the world that's and right. things that are nice in it. Like that's right. You guys. Yay. Like our listeners and our Patreon supporters. We did get a Patreon episode up. We did get a bonus episode up. We've said this a million times, but just in case you're tuning in for the first time, right now all of our bonus content is free. That is our public service uh, to help us all get through quarantine. So right now most of our bonus episodes, we're putting out two a week. Half of them are considered bonus. We're putting them out for free. Eventually, one of those is going to become a paid episode, but for now they're both free. But we do want to reward you guys who are signing up early. So we did put an episode up. That's Patreon only. We're going to get another one out in a week or so or two weeks. We'll say two weeks just to be safe. (laughs) Um, You also, if you sign up through the month of May, you get a free enamel pin no matter what tier you sign up for. And then there are goodies that you get, you know, as you work your way up the tiers. And we're going to be throwing in extra goodies for now, again, because you're being so sweet to sign up without that extra bonus content so we're going to reward you with material goods with our name on it yep Um, oh let me shout out our patreon supporters while we're talking about you guys that's a natural transition mm -hmm. 
We have quite a few this week. We would like to say a huge thank you to Bailey T, Elizabeth G, who, again, girl, you're the best. She's a big supporter on Instagram, too. We love you. Karen W., who's actually an old friend of ours and a wonderful artist. Um, Megan G., who is a son of a bitch because she's also our (laughs) editor, our writer, editor, researcher. Mm -hmm. So she's just being a wonderful friend who we should be paying, but instead she's paying us. So I don't know how that works. Yeah. We'll give it back to her eventually when we're... <laughs> when we strike it big, you guys, you, please keep supporting us so that we can employ Megan full-time and not take her money from her. <laughs> but like how we've just assumed, we just assumed she would work for us <laughs> or with us. I, will I say, mean, with us. you know. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, she yeah, would. I think that's but... sort of her dream job. <laughs> Anybody who's in true crime, if you're like, hey, you want to research and edit true crime so hang out with your best girls shit, yes yes so thank you guys so so yeah, thank so, you so, so much, much. We, we've been calling you our day oneers <laughs> you've been here since day one we will not forget you i guarantee no. it. i'm a leo i'm so loyal you yep. are our people you're our homies so thank you truly yeah. we appreciate it so 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 much so much uh, we still, I, I keep forgetting to shout out our Dallas coven. So I'm thinking about it. I don't know how Dallas became our big supporters. <laughs> I am so excited by that though. Mm-hmm. I have no, I've never even been to Texas. I've been in the Houston airport twice, but yeah. I've never been to Texas. I don't know very many people from there, but you guys have just shown up as our like troop. Yeah. You're, it's amazing. Our, our biggest group of listeners is out of Dallas, Texas. So if you're listening from Dallas, Texas, fucking thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Let us know how you found us. I don't know. Let's hang out when the quarantine is over. I'm so into this. Yeah. Let's go see what Dallas, Texas is all about. I'd love to go to... I I know that I would love Texas. Everybody I've ever met from Texas, I love. Yeah. And even though politically we don't always line up, we always have a good time. My mother-in-law is from Texas. She and I, like, we couldn't get along better. We love Sauvignon Blanc. (laughs) She's hilarious. (laughs) She always says things like, you know, true Southern style. And I know there's a difference between Texas Southern and then like South Carolina, you know, like mm-hmm. Southern Southern. But she always says things like, oh, my, this is it. This is so interesting. Tastes like there's so many ingredients in here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's adorable. It's adorable. So anyway, I love you, Texas. Thank you. Thank you for uh, listening. What else? I don't know. What other businesses? Um, mm. Let me see. I've been writing things down so I don't forget them. So but... smart, because I'm sure I had things to talk about, and right now... Don't... I know. That's it. I think that's it, weirdly. Uh, oh, masks are going out. I got a big old heap in order. I put I put them up on Instagram, you know, open it back up when I'm done sending out the previous order. If you didn't get them, let me know, because the first few that I sent out, I don't know if I put quite enough postage. I have confirmed that I have been putting proper postage since then, but if you haven't gotten them, let me know. It's not big. They have all been sent out. If you didn't, if you ask me for them before like this week, you should have them by now. If you don't, please let me know and I'm happy to resend. But I've got a big stack. So thank you for your patience in if you just, if you just ask for masks this week, I just do them as I can. So it might take me a week or two to get all of them out, but they will get out and we love you guys and want to keep you safe. So Mm -hmm. I'll just keep cranking through with those. And I think that's it. I think so. Question yeah, mark? I know. 
been thinking a lot about how, you know, we don't talk about the quarantine as much, but I hope you guys are doing well out there. Yeah. I know that for me, it continues to be lots of ups and downs. I had a real lull there probably last week and just know you're not alone if you're feeling down. Yeah. Uh, It seems like some states are starting to open up, whether that's smart or not. Mm -hmm. Um, But hang in there. Yeah. We're not alone. No. And we're getting through this. It looks like, you know, scientists are doing incredible work and starting to find things that might be able to treat this virus. And Which is so thrilling. Sadie just yeah. told me that before we got on here and I was like, well, that's the perfect way to end a weekend. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. I think that's it too. Oh, I saw two good horror movies recently. I'll give you that recommendation. I only watch horror by myself because my wife doesn't like them. So I just try to cram them in when she's like she's an artist she paints pictures downstairs when she's painting a picture i watch horror uh, i really loved the lodge it was quite good and i really loved vivarium they're both slow burns so if you like slower kind of artsy horror which i generally kind of don't um unless it's really well done and i think these two are really well done so i recommend Sweet. those mm-hmm. yeah i've been watching schitt's creek finally yeah after, Court- after courtney has been telling me about it for like six months and into season two and they're like my best friends so oh, it's if so you need cool. a really funny really sweet yes easy watching yes uh do it it's really and good nobody likes season one anybody you're probably saying right now i tried it and i didn't really get into mm-hmm. it you are not that's everybody's experience with it push through season one and then season two through six are fucking amazing. And Catherine mm-hmm. O'Hara is a goddamn genius. It's amazing. And I could watch her do anything for the rest <laughs> of my life and die happy because she mm-hmm. shines so bright in that show. <laughs> and it's basically really it's basically a vehicle for her brilliance. And the rest of them are amazing too. But good God, yeah. man. She's incredible. She's incredible. Uh, so you're yeah, incredible. Like, Your guys yeah. are as great as Catherine O'Hara. Go take, a, mm-hmm. take it from here, Sadie. And I've interrupted your social media shout out. Oh, no, that's all right. I think people know where to find us if you're just listening. Yeah. <laughs> we just found all of a sudden, like, stumbled upon us. Uh, we are on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at They Will Kill. Yeah. You can find us. Uh, email else? us. Email yeah. us at They Will, <laughs> they will kill, kill Podcast at, podcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, our website is theywillkill.com. Uh, please rate, review, subscribe. Shit, yeah, man. And thank you, A.G. Bergantz, for our music, our wonderful music. If you're just tuning in, I'm suing him for <laughs> a fake We don't know why. Reason. But uh, eventually we'll <laughs> drop this joke at the end. But not yet. Uh, not yet. Still hanging on tight to suing our dear friend. He's also our family member. He's right. our brother-in-law. So it's not <laughs> even like... <laughs> it's like directly affecting our family yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) anyway thank you we love you we love you guys so much and his sweet wife sandra who's texting me the other day like i'm kind of into this lawsuit (laughs) 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 she she supports it anyway we love you guys Uh, yeah so much and remember oh man oh shit i feel like i had one and now i can't remember what it was uh I don't know. I think just be kind to each other and be careful out there. And I think we're going to be, I know we're going to be okay, but also mm-hmm. um, don't do what's not comfortable for you and try to support each other where we are right now. You know, there's a lot of people doing really crazy things, which I, I you know, I understand why people want to go back to work. They have to, their lives depend, mm-hmm. literally depend on it. So I get that. 
And I also get why people don't want to go outside at all and are really against it. It's a very polarizing experience to have. And I want you all to know that I love you on both sides of it. Just don't be like stupid and reckless and ruthless. Be kind and, you know, advocate for yourselves in whatever it is you need. And we're all in it together, even though it's a cheesy cliche thing to say. It's really true. And if you want to stay home, listen to our podcast. It'll be okay. (laughs) There you go. There you go. Love you guys. Yep. Goodbye. Goodbye.